Hi, uh, my name is Erica T. Worth, and I'm the author of White Horse that's out with Flatiron Macmillan November 1st, and it's an indigenous literary horror novel. Um, it's about Carrie, who despises her mother because she thinks she abandoned her when she was two days old. Um, and she loves heavy metal and she loves horror. Those are the things she loves. But when her um, cousin Debbie uh, gives her an old bracelet of her mother's, Carrie's like, yeah, thanks, and basically tosses it aside. And um, But when she touches it, her mother starts haunting her, the ghost of her mother, and this monster begins to invade her dreams. And so Carrie decides that she uh, guesses she should find out what happened to her mother after all. And uh, one of the bits of ins inspiration for this novel was um, had to do with my grandmother. As I had been told all of my life that my grandmother had suicided, um, but when a cop looked at the um, death certificate for my mother, he said to her that it sort of looked like it had been doctored and the family came to wonder if her husband um, had murdered her. And so that um, controversy had has never been resolved. And I think in some ways the tension between those two uh, potential very, very, very different facts um, in some ways kind of like stayed inside my brain and erupted into this novel. Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. There are plenty of horror cons to choose from, but most only offer the genre as writers and actors. We explore all the shadows within horror entertainment. From idea to product, there are many people behind the scenes, including writers and actors, but also artists, publishers, directors, and composers, and we're bringing them to you, as well as contests, movies, panels, podcasters, and much, much more. We've been going to conventions for over 20 years and are changing up the little things to make the big picture amazing. Join us Memorial Day weekend 2023 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come to the block party and meet your new neighbors. SeeHorrorOnMain.com for details. Hey, it's Well Red Beard. Uh, I appreciate you being here. I'm back full time on my channel. I would love for you to come over and subscribe. Just search Well Red Beard on YouTube. Um, I delve deep into horror. I've spent the last three years uh, reading a ton of independent small press horror. There's treasure to be found there, and I go out there and find it for you. I, I'm not afraid to tell you the books that aren't great while telling you the books that are great. I don't break hearts or hurt feelings, but if a book doesn't work for me, I will tell you that and I'll tell you why. I'm on a new mission now to, to go back and dig into some great horror from the 80s and 90s. I'm working my way through Robert McCammon's books. I'm gonna look at all of Peter Straub's work. I'm gonna do uh, Brian Keene. I've got aspirations to go back and do J.F. Gonzalez. A lot of the greats, so you have a good idea of where to start. I have a video up for J.F. Gonzalez's Survivor, so you can see what all the fuss is about. I recently read Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, so you can see what all the fuss is about. Uh, I just want you to come over and subscribe. I'm trying to grow the thing. I appreciate you taking a look at it. This is Well Read Beard. I hope you're enjoying all your books as much as I am. If not, you're reading the wrong damn books. So I have some pretty exciting news to share. Megan the Horror Babe is partnering up with Horror Max, and I want you guys to join me on my adventure as I watch really campy, cheesy slasher horror movies. I'll be watching tons of scary movies and reviewing them, and you guys can follow along. So if you use the code HORRORBABE, you'll get a free month on me. I promise I won't let you down.
curator will see you now. Are you looking for conversations with some of the hottest names in horror today, like Eric LaRocca, Haley Piper, Clay McLeod Chapman, Laurel Hightower, Jamie Flanagan, and Allie Wilkes, along with indie horror superstars like Brianna Morgan and Joe Coach? Then you should tune in to Terrifying Tomes of Terror with your host, the curator of horror, Chance Forshee, wherever you get your podcasts. If you don't come play with me, then we will kill you. begin we ask if there's anything you or if cena doesn't want to talk about we will not cover it and uh this isn't live so if at any point there's something that anyone said that you or cena or brennan or myself are uncomfortable with aaron let me know i never ask questions it'll be cut um i don't want any mention of the bermuda triangle fuck that place (laughs) (laughs) that's half my questions (laughs) May as well not even do this now. Yeah, forget it. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Welcome to Deadhead Space. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, here always with my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. We're really excited because we have a first-time guest host. She's been on the show quite a few times. Cena Palau, say hello. Hello, everyone. And we can dive into your books at some point, too. We have to pimp Children of Chicago in the upcoming sequel. Um, And, of course, the... Guest today, uh, Grady Hendrix. Welcome aboard. How are you? Uh, good, good. Well, I'm okay. I, uh, I I've been trying to get a new book started in the, like last week and this week, and um, you know, there's just so much crap you have to do, um, and so it's been it's been a little. I, I probably seem a little discombobulated, so I apologize. You have a lot going on, so it's fine. Uh, yeah. We'll dive into the baseline question then. Cena or Brennan, jump in, please, at any point. But Grady, I, I got to know, especially the person that wrote Paperbacks from Hell, what got you into horror? Well, I mean, my, I don't know. What, like, what gets anyone into anywhere? Like, it just kind of <laughs> creeps up on you, you know? Um, like, my horror as a kid, I wasn't a horror reader. Um, I read King, I read Clive Barker, but they were kind of in the atmosphere. Uh, I watched horror movies with my friends, but I think everyone does that. Uh, I didn't really start reading horror or really looking at it until like university and and later. And um, I was I was writing a bunch of different stuff, but it was the horror stuff that seemed to be clicking with people. And when I started really buckling down and writing, um, it was like 2009 or 10. And there just wasn't a ton out there. You know, horror was a pretty, you know, Barnes and Noble had gotten rid of its horror sections. Um, You know, there was just, there just wasn't a ton. And so it felt like it was kind of wide open. Um, So I was an opportunist. 
That's great. And uh, just a tag on to that question. Ronald Kelly reached out to me right before the show. And he said, uh, when I told him I'm having Cena on and Grady, he loves you both, but he wanted to specifically ask you, Grady. He said, what a wonderful show. Please thank him for me for making Zebra Books respectable again, because that's a huge deal for Ron, because he felt, you, you might know, you might not know, listeners might not know, he felt that uh, people forgot about him, and you're a huge direct response, you're responsible for helping the, the wave of everyone kind of remembering that you gotta, you gotta look back to who came before you. So yeah. you have anything to touch on that? Yeah, well, Zebra is weird. I mean, you know, it's funny. It's uh, because I feel like sometimes Zebra just acquired stuff that was like, maybe just horror adjacent. And, you know, and then would like, but, but, you know, especially towards the end, and then would like, publish it as horror. Um, You know, like, I've read stuff from Zebra that like, you know, it feels like a thriller, you know, I just feel like they really, uh, they were they were really doing all kinds of stuff, but I also will always give Zebra credit um, for oh god, and I'm I'm forgetting her name right now. Um, uh, uh, Rebecca Grossman, um, who was their one of their co-founders and editors, who I think was the first female editor in chief. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but she might have been. But she was, you know, by all accounts, not. A well-loved person but man she got it done i mean she and walter zacharias or zacharias they really forged that company out of a slush pile and a couple of bucks and turned it into a real player so um i've always wanted to see like a version of mad men set in the set in the 80s publishing world at a company like zebra that's a good idea cena please jump in are you still? I know you're you're continually collecting paperbacks, uh, like horror paperbacks. Are is there like a horror paperback that you haven't been able to get your hands on that you're just like, where is this copy? No, I mean like they they keep they keep piling up. Um, those are boxes of them behind me. Um, but uh, no, there's not like one I'm looking for. It's kind of more fun to just stumble across them in the wild. I was just down in Winston-Salem doing a show at the Bookmarks Festival, doing the Paperbacks from Hell show, actually. Uh, And a guy I know who lives down there is a collector who actually moved from Long Island to Winston-Salem, or actually he lives outside Charlotte, to have more room for his collection, uh, to like live in a house, a bigger house. But he collects like original art and, uh, and paperbacks. And man, some of the stuff he had in there was just like so unknown to me it was really just stellar um so i kind of like there's still stuff i haven't seen you know and and stumbling across it and the the thing that's happened now though is in a lot of paperback thrift stores you get the same problem you got in the um mid 2000s in clothing thrift stores where like suddenly everything's Mm -hmm. from the late 90s uh you know and it's like it's like the least interesting era like the 70s and 80s stuff is gone. Early 90s is thinning out. Um, and you're left with a lot of Koontz and King and John Saul and like, and then a bunch of like sexy vampire books from the late 90s. Yeah. You are 100% yeah, describing the uh, the used bookstore down the street from me. Just John Saul Central with the occasional King thrown in there. Yeah. Um, 
Well, and it's funny too, right? Like it's one of those, I, I always find it this cautionary tale, like nothing against Dean Koontz uh, and, and nothing against John Saul. I mean, John Saul, I think his life is more amazing than, than his books to a large extent. Um, but like, you know, but you look at someone like Stephen King, who, whatever you want to say about a man, he really um, puts it out there every time, right? He's like, he doesn't, I don't think King phones it in. I think he like, really really genuinely goes for it with every book and and really tries to get some blood on the page and then you look at like you know dean coons who i'm not quite sure has that level of sweat and you're like and yet here they are on the same shelves like piled up next to each other Brady, i'm wondering if uh you've ever met these two gentlemen uh on my i guess would be my left the red shirt is Mark Saylor. On the right is Jim Marshall. No. They're usually at, well, they were usually at Scares I Care. They carry a lot of those older books and, you know, Chismar and Keenan and all of them. But Jim is, you want to talk about a guy that's super knowledgeable about older books from the 20s and whatnot. Um, yeah. I mean, I had long conversations with him about, how mostly him talking how uh, GIs in World War II would rip out pages of their books and pass it along because they only had so many, you know, reading material in, in between slow periods. And uh, the, I guess GIs from World War II were huge into Lovecraft. It's just one random fact that of a lot that he, oh. he knew. And um, guys like Brian Keane, Tom Montoli, um, Jonathan Jans, they, those guys would go to jim to see this bed at the hotel it scares a care to see all these super old unknown books and it, it just seems like jim would kind of be the bridge to honestly you because of, seriously for the paperbacks from hell and your your expansive knowledge on this stuff um you two <laughs> you two would get along pretty well but yeah that's all i gotta say about that no, no 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 i've never met him and that's you know it's funny like the last two years have been sort of like I think I would have met a lot more people with like Nikon hadn't gone away and like live events hadn't gone away. So yeah, yeah I always feel like I'm kind of faking it. Um, but that Lovecraft thing is interesting. And that happened with a lot of other books where, and I'm gonna, I'm not going to get my facts right, but you know, the military provided a library to GIs. And I, and I've heard that that love, that a Lovecraft collection made it into there, which sort of accounted for his popularity, you know, after the war. Well, you got to figure you got you got guys that are dealing with not knowing when they're going to possibly get killed, see who's going to get, you know, who's going to die. You see terrible things. So I'm sure let's read about aliens that will take our mind off of this brutality. Well, I also think, you know, I think I think one thing that gets underrated or underestimated is that um, horror is not boring. Like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I feel like if I was a GI, like, and it's like, oh, here are a lot of books I can pick from. And there's a little Faulkner and a little this and a little that. Oh, and this one's horror. I'll go for that. Like, that's it's just like more fun. Absolutely. Brendan, uh, you, you were going to. Sorry, Sienna, go ahead. No, I was going to say quick. I'm going to say quickly, I know, like, um, you've said that multiple times, Grady, like in interviews, and I've, I've heard you talk about it, that that's why many of us love horror, because it encompasses so much. It's such a wide range as yeah. opposed to other genres that may be more formulaic. And I understand some people want that comfort of going into a specific genre and having, having that formula. But like in horror, you can have something that's completely unexpected, like Leprechaun <laughs> or, you know, or just something, you know, or Gothic 
you know, our gothic storyline. So there, that is, I like, yeah. what's why well, it's and also, to so many. Yeah, and also, like, yeah, it encompasses, I mean, horror, I think, is like, it comes so close to YA in the sense that, is it really a genre? Like, you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. YA yeah. is like, that's a marketing term. Like, you can have YA romance, you can have YA super, Riley, really, like, it encompasses so much that the label YA almost doesn't have a lot of meaning anymore. And I feel like that's almost the case with horror. When you're looking at a genre that I think, plausibly includes everything from Rebecca to Toni Morrison's beloved to HP Lovecraft to right. Stephen Graham Jones. Like, I mean, it's like, is that a helpful genre label? It's it's too big. I agree. And I feel like we're, I think feel like we're there. Like we're there. Yeah. It's just so wide ranging that just, just to not, I don't want to use the word dismiss, but some people might still dismiss it as just horror, but it's just so wide ranging. We have, there's genres and subgenres within the category. So it's. Yeah. And I feel like, and that's really helpful, I think, for fans. I mean, there are people who really want zombie erotica, period. That's all they're interested in. Yeah, exactly. So thank God there's there's meta tags, (laughs) you know, thank God there's indie books. Yeah. Yeah. Brennan, uh, I'm interested to hear where you were going to pick up. Oh, you know, I actually wanted to jump back to something you said a little bit ago, Grady. You mentioned, you know, that horror essentially crept up on you, snuck into your life, um, and that at the time when you were starting to find that your more popular stuff that you were writing fit into that genre, that bookstores weren't really carrying it and it wasn't as widely available as it might be now. Is that kind of what led into your kind of deep dive into the older paperbacks is just the fact that there just wasn't a lot out? My, my incredible ignorance about, yeah, <laughs> no, totally. No, totally. Like, like there was also, you know, I think there was a thing in the night, in probably in the two thousands really where a lot of stuff that would be published as horror now was getting published as literary fiction just because the horror mm. marketing label was so dead. Um, God, what was it? Lives of the Monster Dogs. I don't know if y'all remember that or Gargoyle. Like, I think oh, we're, gargoyle, yeah. yeah, like those were books that were yeah, pretty that. clearly horror, but they were definitely not, they were published as literary fiction because they had a little style to them. And, you know, they had some like structural fun, but like, you know, and, and people were just like, well, why would I market it as horror? That's like yeah. saying marketing is a big pile of shit. So, you know, I, um, I, I think, so I think that was going on. Um, but yeah, no, I was really, there wasn't a lot on the shelves and I really love paperback swap shops anyways. And I was just seeing yeah. huge horror aisles where I was completely unfamiliar with 80% of it. You know what I mean? And it was like, I just started randomly reading. And it's funny, you know, I'm a big fan of Elizabeth Ingstrom who published uh, When Darkness Loves Us and Black Ambrosia. But one of the reasons her work hit me the way it did is when I was reading for paperbacks from hell, I think I had just read like seven or eight books that were just struggles. And so then I got to Mm -hmm. someone who actually was like invested. And so it was just like a light switch going on. So like, I really worried when um, we, when Valancourt, I helped them republish uh, When Darkness Loves Us. I was like, maybe I was overrating this. Cause like, you know, I was just like coming off of a dry spell, but then seeing how people responded to it. Thank, thank God. Maybe they're all coming <laughs> off dry spells too. 
Brennan. Oh, Cena, go ahead. Sorry, Cena. I was thinking, because we're since we're talking about that, you know, and a lot of people keep keep throwing the words around that we're in another car renaissance. And then, you know, we think back to like the, the period that you're talking about, like that 24 year period, like at the end of the 70s to like, yeah. through. do you think something similar is happening right now with horror? Or do you think that I don't time know. just can't, can't be replicated because it was such a different period? Well, also, you know, one of the problems is we've lost a lot of readers. I mean, when you look at like 1988, say when like and i'm guessing here 88 maybe it was 84 but like when a mid-list author would be selling 85 125,000 copies in in paperback you know right. and you're kind of like we're and now what's mid-list sell 30,000 like you know and it's yeah. like we've lost a ton of readers and so i feel like things aren't ever going to get that crazy again because I think when there was a lot of money and a lot of like distribution channels that needed to be filled, I think editors maybe were a little less choosy and also a little more willing to go further afield because, okay, I'm going to try something crazy with this because maybe this will click. Maybe, maybe, maybe zombie erotica will click. And if it doesn't, I've got something else coming up, you know, the following week. And so it won't be, a, you know, I can take more risks. Right. We can afford something. So I don't know. I, I mean, I don't think particularly that, but I do think um, one of the things that's happened is sort of um, the, the children of the nineties have come of age. And mm -hmm. I think they're kind of the, the saviors of horror these days. Like, um, the 90s really gets looked down on as sort of the era when horror died. And, you know, a lot less horror movies got made. Um, a lot of the franchises kind of went off a cliff. Um, all the publishing lines, especially the paper lines, shut down. I mean, and horror really got tarred with the gore porn label in the mm -hmm. early 90s that really stuck with it till now, I think. Um, and still sticks with it to some extent. And, and horror, I think, did that. I think that was a self-inflicted wound. But kids growing up in the 90s, or even, you know, not just kids. I mean, like, you know, kids who were in college, stuff, they were watching the X-Files, you know? And, and the mm -hmm. X-Files was, oh, horror can have women in it who are main characters. Horror can be funny. Horror can be weird. Horror can be Buffy. Mm -hmm. And then they got Buffy which I think really pushed those guys. Horror can be romantic. Horror can be, you know, scary one minute and funny the next. And then, you know, you got Scream, which really, I think, pushed things in a, in a different direction. Uh, so I feel like, you know, and then you've got a whole lot more stuff towards the late 90s, but I just feel like horror really had stuff that expanded the boundaries in the 90s. And so kids yeah. who grew up with that expect more from it. You know, they really... Yeah. expect horror to do better. I'll throw a Candyman mm. too. Yes. I feel like that was a massive one. And mm. I know Cena loves it for the Chicago uh, roots, but that oh, the Clive, <laughs> the, the Clive Barker movies, 80s to 90s, oh, yeah. they, I'm sure for all of us, they were just game changers. And it's coming from someone who, who, you know, it's a, a gay British man who does this stuff that, a lot of people that may be conservative, it might pull them in through the movies or even the books. And that kind of turns some heads and it, it kind of has this domino effect. Yeah. Well, and it's funny though, you know, it's interesting because I think Clive Barker is one of those writers um, 
that he's sort of a different writer for everyone. Like to me, Barker is the books of blood, weave world. And then I kind of tap out. Um, but I know for a lot of people, great and secret Barker is great and secret show and a magica and, you know, and, and those, the book, the art trilogy, I think, or the books of the art, like for them, he's this dark fantasy guy who was, a, and that was their Barker. It's the same with King a little bit with the dark tower series. I know for some people, King is the dark tower. Mm-hmm. I love Stephen King. I've read everything he's written except the Dark Tower books. But like, so, you know, it's like, you, 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 you know, you, you look at this picture. Is it two black-faced women staring at each other or one white goblet? Like, you know what I mean? It's just like how you're looking at it depends on the writer it is. So to me, 80s Barker is my Barker. But I know for a yeah. lot of people, 90s Barker is their Barker. Yeah. And where do you hope, where do you want to see horror go? where it's going. I mean, you know, we're on the right track then. That's good. Yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, more of this, please. Um, yeah. You know, and the one thing, the one thing I really, I worried about briefly and then I realized, Hey, it's never going to happen. And B YA did just fine. But there was that real YA gold rush for a little while. I feel like when every agent, was telling all their like adult authors, ooh, all the money's in YA, you should do something. And we got a lot of really uninspiring books, I think. And I sometimes worry that if like horror continues to be seen as this like hot new field, we're going to have that moment. At the same time, YA survived it just fine. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I think any genre, once it reaches a certain size, can survive some... Right. mercantile minded yeah. opportunists that was like what 2010 to 2012 that, yeah. that was a huge why everything and um but yeah it's still holding strong why yeah, yeah area and with horror i mean like look at you you got my best friend's exorcist paul tremblay's huge m night Shyamalan movie and i threw this out there and i'd like your take on it um and it wasn't for hyperbole hyper i can't talk it wasn't for hyperbole and it wasn't just for, hey, this is a hot take thing. But I think that the M. Night Shyamalan, Tremblay team up could have a modernized parallel to uh, Robert Bach's Psycho and, and uh, Alfred Hitchcock. I, I, it could it could be that big because, you know, M. Night Shyamalan, he's a when he's on fire, he's on fire. Oh, yeah. I mean, I. Listen, I, I think the sixth sense and uh, signs, I really love signs. And exactly. The, yeah. And it's funny, the script for signs is great. I actually think it's much better written than the sixth sense. Um, it's just really, really good. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, listen, who knows, right? Like movies are so different from the books they're based on. Movies and books are such different beasts. Mm. Uh, but already that knock at the cabin door, um, trailer is like Shyamalan's most viewed trailer of all time. So, um, you know, there Dave, you go. Dave Bautista is awesome too, as an actor. Yeah. Although I can't figure out Dave Bautista's head. Like it's so <laughs> strange. And it's alien. All like the, <laughs> the wrinkly metrics and the lines. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's like, he's got like this science fiction head. I feel like, I feel like I, every time I that. see him, he's like a special effect. <laughs> Cena. So, um, so I, I, ha- I have to ask this question because I want to start moving into um, 
Wait, am I on mute? Oh, I'm not on mute. Okay. Nope. Um, so my best friend's exorcism comes out on Prime September 30th. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, and so you wrote, it's a spiritual trilogy. Do you feel that way between my best friend's exorcism, the Southern Book Club's guide to slaying vampires and how to sell your, a haunted house? Because <laughs> they all feel, they all take place in the yeah. same they all take place in the same neighborhood. Yeah. Um, was that intentional? Or oh, yeah. I mean, oh, okay. with Best Friends Exorcism, <laughs> it was a little bit different because I was kind of like, I got to write about my high school experience. And, and after I had sort of an abortive first attempt to write it, it was just garbage. I was like, okay, I got to do this. Like, it's got to be something I really know. So I said it, you know, where I grew up and I in my old high school because I know that. Um and then I felt really bad um, oh, about the parents in uh, my best friend's exorcism because they um, they didn't, you know, everyone thought they were the bad guy. And, and that's because the story was told from the point of view of the kids and your parents are the bad guys. And I was like, <laughs> you know, but, but there's a different version of this story from the parents' point of view where they're not the bad guys. So Southern Book Club was sort of an attempt to write about adult friendship, which I think is really different from teenage friendship. And I think it runs colder, but it's a lot more important, I think. I mean, teenage friendship is important at the time, but I think adult friendship, thats those are going to be the friendships that get you through your kid getting cancer, your parents dying, you getting a divorce. Like that's the, I mean, I'm not saying not serious stuff happens when you're a teenager, but like the big, big stuff is like, you're going to, and so, and then when I was doing how to sell a haunted house, I really, really wanted to set it in that neighborhood again. And I realized I was writing a book basically about parents dying. And I was like, and and sort of how a family continues after that. Uh, And also haunted puppets and dolls. Like, and how the hell does the family continue after that and so in my head they're very much all connected but and there's a little shout out to my best friend's exorcism in southern book club and there's a couple of small shout outs to best friend's exorcism in southern book club in how, how to sell a haunted house but like yeah i mean i can see someone reading them and being like what these have nothing to do with each other my best friend's exorcism you tackle you know the relationship of the best friends and the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, you tackle like, you know, um, adult relationships, you know, women that are grouped together in this dynamic. And then you have the brother and sister and how to sell a haunted house. And you, it is very emotional. This book is very oh, emotional thanks. because you, you t- yeah, it, it was very, it was very touching because I think that many of us are, I almost feel like, and tell me if I'm wrong, because I, I know you were writing this during during the pandemic, and I almost feel like you were saying, I understand what you all are going through. I'm going through it too. Because it just felt like this acknowledgement that we were all mourning in a way. Yeah. And that, that's definitely what I felt like reading this book. Yeah. Oh, no, thanks. I mean, yeah, that's definitely there. I mean, it was, it wasn't even me saying, I understand what you're all going through. It was me saying, <laughs> help, I'm going through this. Like, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I mean, I think one thing that hit a lot of people in the pandemic, or at least it hit me was, you know, we all sort of had to contemplate our parents' mortality. And, you know, I had a, a, a relative, my aunt Lee, who I really, really love a lot, who, 
uh, and my wife was very close. She was that, you know, sort of great aunt figure, you know, you, you, you're always closer to one older relative, right? And, and it was who my wife was closest to. And um, and she was sort of the real heart and soul of our family. Mm. And, um, you know, she was loud. She was outgoing. She really, she didn't really give a damn, you know, and she was a fabulous person. And she died all alone, you know, in a hostel, in a hotel room. Um, and the co- closest connection she had was a FaceTime call, you know, and oh. it's, and, and so I think with, between that, oh, thanks. Between that, I think that happened to a lot of people. Like I'm not unique. Yeah. And I also, you know, my parents, my dad, you know, his health isn't great. And my mom has lung disease and had to really isolate. And in the middle of this, she got like a breast cancer diagnosis and really had a couple of like moments where her health really fell apart. And, um, and you know, you sort of come face to face. I think a lot of people did in the pandemic with like, God, my mom is alone in a house hundreds and hundreds of miles away and she's not safe. And you know what I mean? And, and what happens then? And I think, you know, and I think that's, you know, what, how do you, how do you keep a family going when your parents die? Like it happens, but like, you know, navigating those sibling relationships and, you know, what traditions you keep, what you lose, whose house mm-hmm. do it's like, that stuff's complicated. And I think everyone got kind of a, a look at that during the pandemic. So mm-hmm. no, I really appreciate you saying it. Cause I think that's, what we all dealt with, you know? Yeah. That's, that's, and just like going through it, it's, it's like you're dealing with the grief of losing your parents. And then a lot of us will be in this position where we're actually picking through their things and oh, determining yeah. what stays, what goes. And that's almost like that adds on to the trauma. And so many people did this and they continue to do this. And I don't think we think about that, but many of us are going to be in that position one day. And it's, it's uh, difficult. Yeah. And of course you have your endearing moments and you're, you know, in, throughout the book, and you know, you have laughter, but it was very, um, it, it was very emotional. And I, so thank you because I, it made me think about a lot of things. So no, I really appreciate it. Well, you know, what yeah. I thought about a lot was, you know, when I was down in South Carolina in my mom's house, when she got really sick, she has these garbage bags full of fabric scraps in the garage that she's had for years. And she keeps saying she's going to make a quilt out of them. My mom has never made a quilt in her life. And somehow she's convinced she's held on to these things forever. And like, you know, I was like sitting there going, she died. Like, what, what the hell do I do with these things? Like they mean something to her, but they, I don't want them, but like, I'm going to feel really weird putting these in the garbage. Like I, and, and, you know, and I've had to do that with a friend's house before who was a big collector and like helping his, his uh, widow, like sort of sort through the stuff with some other people. And it's like, you know, it is really a weird experience. Like people, you know, and that's kind of what a lot of, not a lot, a certain variety of horror haunted houses in particular is about what people leave behind, right? Things, memories trauma ghosts Mm -hmm. um and how do you deal with this stuff and i feel like horror always has these two options right you either like solve whatever problem it is that's holding this ghost here or you finish its unfinished business and then it puffs away and i'm like 
I wish it was that easy. I wish I could take those bag that bag of fabric out for a beer and be like, so 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 what's your problem? And it'd be like, I want to be a quilt. And then I'd turn it into a quilt and it would like poof yeah. and be gone. And instead, I'm gonna have to take this fabric that my mom was right. emotionally invested in and stuff it in a garbage can with a bunch of like coffee grounds and put it yeah. out by the street. I mean, and that in in it of itself is a ghost. The way we, think, yeah. you know, we don't think we don't think about these things as ghosts. Like they're they're things, the memories, the decisions that the people that pass that they made that impact us. So yeah, those are ghosts. Well, you know, and it's funny. I'm reading a lot of uh, ghost stories right now because I'm doing. I'm putting together the show I'm going to do for how to sell a haunted house when I sort of go out on the road oh, to promote it next year. And there's this great one by Charlotte Riddell. I, I think it's, oh, I can't remember which one it is, um, but it's a ghost in this house and she's just annoying. And like, she just like bustles by people in the hall in a hurry and like jostles them really hard and like growls at them. And I'm like, I love the idea of just this crappy ghost that's always in a bad mood that just like, it doesn't yield. Like, cause that's the thing, like, like we're all like, I don't want a ghost to rip my face off. I don't want a ghost to like, you know, scream and it's hair to come across. But I'm like, you know what really annoys me is when people don't yield right on the sidewalk. <laughs> Like, you know, you yeah. go to the right, that's the side you drive on. And then you wind up in that stupid shuffle thing. And then they like bump into you and you're like, oh, excuse you. Like, I, and so a ghost that <laughs> yeah. does that is like <laughs> after my own heart. It's a nightmare. Yeah. I love it. It gets a nightmare. Cena, do you have uh, the questions that you reposted in front of you at all? For Grady? The Which question? The questions that from Twitter? Yeah. Oh God, Twitter questions. I love oh, those. They were pretty fun. Yeah. So I. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, the first. There better not be one about the Bermuda Triangle. I told you guys before this started. <laughs> Damn it, Brendan! We'll I told you to cut that out. <laughs> I, will, I will be sure. I will be sure to screen screen any uh, questions. Okay. So, um, uh, well. <laughs> chance for uh one of our book fellow books that one of our beloved booksellers did want to know why horror authors are so hot i don't know if that's appropriate but <laughs> um <laughs> well uh <laughs> you know I, I i i think we're all just you know clean living clean living and pure hearts this is a really good question though from um uh finding montage i thought that Alex. was a good a question I think that was a great question. This was this one I was really excited about. This is comes okay. from Finding Montauk, Alex. He said the chapter titles in My Best Friend's Exorcism are '80s songs. What are your favorite songs? In general, or from the '80s? He said just in general. What's his favorite? So I'm assuming maybe this sticks to the '80s since he referenced the '80s chapters. Yeah. yeah. So um, so I've got a lot. Um, and I, I, I really, um, I'm trying to think here. Uh, okay. So my most embarrassing favorite 80s song is, and you know, I'm going to get the titles wrong. Cause so many songs you're like, Oh yeah, that's like this song. And actually it turns out like the title of the song is actually like a word you don't recognize. And then a bunch of other words in like parentheses. Um, but like, so, uh, um, which we got, uh, don't you forget about me is that song that always gets me. It's corny, it's cheesy, it's lame, but it's, it's, you know, I, the breakfast, 
Breakfast Club blew me away when I saw it when I was a kid. And um, that song just like takes me back. And then, and this is going to be probably the moment where I seem like the biggest dope ever on the planet. But uh, Bring the Noise by Public Enemy is a song <laughs> I love so much. Um, and one of my greatest concert going experiences was when I think they were on tour in 90 and they played the King Street Palace, which was like probably only it was a pretty small venue in Charleston. And me and my girlfriend at the time, and she was super into hip hop and knew way more than I did. We went to see it and like it was the rowdiest, most fun I've almost ever had at a show. And it was the it was the tour where I'm going to get this wrong. I think but they lynch a Klansman at one point in it and like the audience went crazy. And, you know, I mean, it was just such a great moment. But also I heard a rumor that Will Smith on this tour would actually sometimes be on stage as like a backup dancer or like singer or part of the S1Ws or something. And I really hope that's true. Like it totally sounds like an that's urban legend. Cool. Um, but, uh, and then, okay, and then my emo side, uh, Tracy Chapman's Fast Car is a song I've always loved un unreservedly. Um, and going with that, I was, uh, you know, I still like I Me Man, but I really loved her Till Tuesday days. And Coming Up Close is like one of the saddest songs ever written, period, full stop. Um, so, I, I mean, I think I could go on to, oh, uh, Debaser by the Pixies was a song I think I listened to just endlessly in high school. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could go on and on all night long, but we don't have that much time here tonight. Wait, I have to ask this last one. There was a lot of good questions, but this is a yeah, really yeah. good Bring question. them. No, no, no. Bring them all. This, oh, okay. I'll, so I'll this give faster answers so we can get them all in. Let's <laughs> no, do one. So I'm trying to read their like username correctly. So this is Yikes, Yaika. She is a librarian. Um, how many best friends have you exercised? <laughs> um, none, weirdly <laughs> enough. Um you would think I'd get to do that more often. Um, but yeah. I rarely get, although I will say, so I was at, uh, when I was doing my best friend's exorcism book stuff and, and getting out there on the road, I had done the horror store author events and I knew they weren't for me. Like the sort of read from the book Q and A thing, it wasn't working for me. And so with my best friend's exorcism, I was trying this stunted version. I would get it right with paperbacks from hell, but like this stunted version of the shows I'd do later. But I would, I had a Cardinals costume. I would dress up and not the baseball team, but like the, the, the Catholic uh, uh, clergyman. And I, I did this shtick about the satanic panic and all this. And I remember doing this at a bookstore with like, I think there were like 13 people there. And there were these four really unhappy looking people. They're older than, than everyone else. And like, and they, and they started asking these really specific questions about exorcisms. And it turned out they were there because they had a family member who um, had fallen in with someone who said she was possessed by a demon and needed to be exercised. And I mean, she was really having like a mental health crisis and they thought they needed to arrange a safe exorcism for her to get this demon out of her. And um, I have rarely disappointed people as hard and, and as seriously as I disappointed these four people who came here because it was like the only thing they could find 
that said exorcism in it. And instead of getting actual useful information or help, they got this idiot doing this like monkey dance trying to sell his book. <laughs> I, uh, I I really I really wish one of them had had the wherewithal to smack me. Oh my goodness. And she also asked, what horror films um, are you looking forward to watching this year? Oh, well, the one I'm most looking forward to seeing is Barbarian, which I haven't seen yet because mm-hmm. I'm an idiot. And usually I'm, usually I'm the self-deprecating one here, Grady. No, I, I wish I'd plane, seen it sir. like a week ago. Dude, I didn't even see Nope until like three weeks ago. I'm, I'm just behind. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I got a I got a little baby that I, uh, I try to entertain when I'm not working. <laughs> try to entertain when I'm not working. I just have this image of you doing like stand-up on this sort of like king of comedy basement stage and the baby's just like ignoring you and you're like okay okay got some baby jokes <laughs> what's the deal with diapers <laughs> the oh, baby's boy. like calling for the check <laughs> wait see okay let's do i said i'd give shorter answers video. let's do one let's oh. power through <laughs> all right so da- david wilson asked um if <laughs> is it true that every horror author has to write a rock and roll horror novel yeah, so mine is We Sold Our Souls, and it's my lowest selling book of all time. It really almost wrecked my life writing that book, uh, not because it sold low, but just writing the book was, was it had a lot of drama. Um, I love that book. I mean, you're not supposed to have favorites, but that's my personal favorite of my books. Um, Why? But and it also got me into metal, which I was not into before. And so like that is always good. But my agent said, he said, uh, he was looking at my sales numbers. He's like, well, every author wants to write a rock and roll book. And it's the job of every agent to stop them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's how, you know, that's how George R. R. Martin ruined his career. I mean, Oh my God. Yes. Armageddon Armageddon, uh, Armageddon uh, rag. That's it. Yeah. He was coming off fever dream and he was riding high and he did Armageddon rag and it sold nothing and he gave up he couldn't get another book published so he went into tv yeah that kind of worked out beauty and the beast <laughs> worked out worked out uh kim stanley robinson's the same thing um i can't remember what his rock and roll book was but he said it really did not do well and it like it took him a little while to get his legs back under him publishing wise cena do not write a rock and roll book. i will not write i will not write a rock and roll book i'm sitting here traumatized now like no rock, no rock and roll no. i know um so I think we we actually covered all the Twitter questions. Okay, that was pretty. I quick. got one more. I got one yeah, more. It's yeah, just not. A, it's on a different it. page. So oh, wait, oh, okay. I actually saw one that it's funny. It's about a horse. Do you want me to read mine, or are you going to tell us the horse story? Uh, I didn't want to interrupt. Oh. It. Oh, okay. okay uh, this one is from Brian McCauley. He is the author of Curse of the Reaper, which comes out on October 4th, I think it is. And Brian says, hey, Grady, each of your novels feels like a seamless mashup of a specific subculture with a specific horror subgenre. Was there ever a story you attempted to write where the concept just didn't gel and you had to put it aside? Oh, yeah. And there's actually... There's actually um... Well, there's two. Uh, so there's a book I wrote that was the, I, that it got me the horror story. Like it, it got my editor sort of talking to me about horror story because he liked my writing, but he hated the book. Um, 
but it was a, it was sort of a revisionist haunted house thing. It was basically a family, a, a single dad moves into a, a haunted a house that turns out to be haunted and like all his money's tied up in it. He can't move. And so he tells his kids like, just ignore everything, just ignore it all. And so they live in this house. that's like all the you know, bloods oozing out the vents and like, there's a portal to hell in the basement. And they just really, really try hard to just ignore all of it. Um, and it just never, it never quite came together. But then the other one is there's a great Thai folk tale that's been adapted a ton of times. Um, the most recent was there was a movie in the late 90s called Nang Nak. Um, but it's a story about a guy in a village and he's married and his wife's pregnant and he gets drafted to go off to war. There's a couple of different variations on it. And he comes back years later and his wife's kind of like living on the edge of town and she's in poverty and the kid's sick all the time and everyone kind of shuns her. And he's like, what happened? She's like, I'm waiting for you. And, and everything's just gone bad. And he's like, oh, this is awful. And what you realize is she died after he left and he's living with her ghost and everyone who tries to sort of wake him up out of this fantasy that his family's still alive. She like gets rid of. And I tried to do a version of that set in like 1950s rural South Carolina uh, with sort of a Korean war thing. And it just, it just, it just never, it was too, it didn't have enough blood in it. It just wasn't working. It was a good idea. It had good moments, but it just, there wasn't a heart to it. And I, I gave up after a while. Uh, I never hear anyone else talk about the Korean war and I'm obsessed with it. So that please, please write that book. I'll be your number one a, fan for that book. <laughs> I have a question. What are you working on next? Oh, oh so the next, so I'm, my next book is, um, it's set in 1970 and it's uh, in a home for unwed mothers. Um, and it's got sort of a childbirth thing, bit of a Rosemary's baby thing to it. Um, but I've been really obsessed with this topic for a long time. I have two aunts who are, who are sent away to have their kids after they were both uh, raped uh, when they were teenagers. And it's something they never talked about until very late in their lives. And one of them actually met her son when she was in her eighties or yeah, eighties. Uh, and it was, it was such a huge, great thing for her. And, um, and my other aunt never really knew what happened to her daughter. And it always, I think it always haunted her a little bit. Um, and I've always just been so not obsessed because that sounds like, I don't know, I'm obsessed with, you know, the X-Files, but like, I've always been fascinated by how cruel that was. Um, and there's like very little written about it. There's a couple of academic books and there's one great book. It's a, it's a bunch of oral histories of, of women who got sent away, girls who got sent away. And I say girls because they were always referred to as girls. Um, uh, and some were, you know, some of these were very, you know, they were all young women, but some were in their early 20s, a lot were teenagers, some were 13. Um, and there was, a, and I started reading this book just because I was really interested in, in sort of learning more about what I had my aunts who were both deceased now. And um, one of the women said, you know, they always say we gave up our kids, we gave away our babies, and we didn't, they were taken. And it's, it, it's just horrifying. I've been reading all of these, like, social worker manuals from the the 70s and the 60s and how you deal with unwed mothers and all this and it's just 
you know, it's amazing. And, and I've read book after book after book and case studies and all this stuff written at the time about the problem and all this. And there is one line that encapsulates everything in one book. I've never seen it anywhere else. Uh, and there's contemporary studies that talk about this, but I'm talking about the, like the books that were written in the in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s about how to deal with this problem. There's one line in one of these books that's for clergy if they're dealing with a, a, a member of their congregation who's who's having an illegitimate baby. And it's sort of like, you know, here's the numbers you need to know and the numbers of illegitimate births each year. And, you know, just sort of the basic statistics you should know going into this. And at the bottom of this chapter, the last sentence, it says, we are not talking about, of course, there are two parties involved in every illegitimate pregnancy. However, we are not talking about the putative fathers because there is no study, no research, and no numbers on them, period, full stop. And so it's this problem that was pontificated about and written about. There were 200 maternity homes in America. There were a quarter of a million unwet, like illegitimate births every year. And no one ever talks about the father. It's all about the women. And it's so amazing to me that this incompletely natural, because I've gotten super into like birth right now while doing this because I've been looking at a lot of obstetrics manuals and taking some online classes and stuff because I am a childless middle-aged man. So why the hell am I writing a book about pregnancy? Um, but like, and, and, and so it's like birth is like this incredible amazing thing people go through and do and it's so great and here were all these millions and millions of women doing that who were made to feel like they had they're doing the most natural thing in the world and they've been made to feel like they've committed a crime against nature um and so um so it's been really fun you can tell i'm like like really that's where my head is now this is Um, fascinating because uh, i've heard of these homes and i i have um i have two children so i remember I remember birth. Like we birthed my husband and I. We like we birthed at home, and we had a. Did you really? And it was, yeah. Well, we started it. We started at home, and like thirty hours into it, we were like, "We got to go to the hospital." And then we went to the hospital. But um, for both but of them, or just the first? For for both of them. I'm sorry. I don't mean to pry. So, I'm just like no, but, super fascinated yeah, so, by people's so, pregnant stories, so had, pregnancy so, stories. So I had a, I had a doula, and it, and so it was just. It's um, it's not a midwife. It's just another woman yeah, yeah, that yeah. will come and just like take care of you, and like will get you food, and will take care of your husband. And it's just you know she will just like keep us calm throughout it. And it was just such a wonderful experience to have another person there with us. Um, and we can if you ever want to, if you want to chat more about it, I can tell you oh, what it was 100%. like to have a doula. I will, but, I will um, drop you a line. Yeah. yeah, yeah, drop me a line because it was like. It made it made the entire experience just so much so wonderful, and so I couldn't imagine being in that very vulnerable state and then be made to feel shame for it. Yeah, it was like for this is like a huge celebration. Yeah, exactly. And so this was a huge celebration, and it was very like there was just all this love, and I, I had a midwife. So then after I, I'm sure all the listeners are like, oh my god, I don't want to know about Tina. <laughs> Then we went to the hospital and we birthed with a midwife. So it was all these women. It was just beautiful. It was just um, no. And see, yeah. and that's and also what's so amazing is how much obstetrics has changed. Like if you'd been doing that in 1970, you would have been unconscious. You would have been under yeah. general anesthesia for most yeah. of that process. 
like, yeah. which I think is insane. Um, I mean, I've been, I've been interviewing some people who worked obstetrics rounds, you know, in the seventies and the eighties and the way they did things is, is like, I mean, it's, it's the kind of intense horror I wouldn't want to talk about on this podcast because yeah. it's really, I mean, you know, um, intense, um, yeah. what they did. And it's, it's so nuts that the, the woman is almost considered, I mean, not now, but I mean, was for so long considered sort of the least important part of the childbirth process. What the fuck? Yeah. yeah my yeah. wife's a social <laughs> worker and I'm sorry to cut you off. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, this is great. I was just going to say like the stuff I have found out over the last 10 years, it's, um, it is eye-opening oh yeah no that must be amazing well it's also you know it's funny right there's so much stuff that we all sort of like we all feel like we live roughly in the same world right um you know but like your wife is a social worker i'm sure when y'all are driving places she's seen a very different landscape out the car windows than you are you know what i mean she you know you know and i'm sure like midwives see things radically different than anyone else it's 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 just amazing that like people who deal with these different very particular intense parts of people's lives just the world looks probably so different to them she is not phased by much um <laughs> <laughs> i don't say this flippantly but she uh one of her jobs she at one point pretty much saw people overdose every day and uh i told her some weird stuff that i saw driving through atlantic city because that's where i work i work at a literal shit plant so i see the underbelly of my county um wait what 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 what, what do you work <laughs> i work at a wastewater treatment plant oh, okay i was like i was like we don't, i don't think we need help manufacturing shit <laughs> <laughs> no, no no we have uh it's delivered by pipes it's manufactured by human bodies so wait in atlantic city that's where, yeah, that's where my plan is. But um, so everything's piped there. I only been to Atlantic City once, and it was to go to this convention, and it was like winter of twenty twenty. It was January of twenty twenty, and it was like bleak and cold, and the wind was howling, and it was doing that sort of thing it always does on the coast, where it's not really raining, but it's not not raining, and it's like. It was Atlanta, and I stayed in this Airbnb to save money that was way at the end of the boardwalk where there were just like empty lots. And I got to say, man, Atlantic City was one of the most, it felt like being in a Ramsey Campbell book. It was just like the bleakest place I'd almost ever been. It was so great. I loved uh, it. Man, I wish I, I knew you back then. Uh, do, do you happen to recall seeing windmills on your way there? Yeah. Yeah, there was a windmill like restaurant or something right near where I was staying. That, that's my um. Well, there's a few windmills that it's one way that they uh, get energy and naturally, and oh. that that's on my island. <laughs> oh, nice! Yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I was probably in a neighborhood you know. Uh, yeah, Lex is not a place you want to be at night, man. Yeah, and that's what really blew my mind. But you know, I grew up in like a, a tourist town. Um, and so I love that aspect of these tourist places where it's like the carnival looks great as long as you're looking at it from this side. But if you go around to behind the carnival, it's not so good. Don't go there. Yeah, it's just crazy because you got, you know, such odd connections to organized crime. Um, you got uh, Frank Sinatra and his 
Croup and go back the, all the way to Al Capone and and uh, Nucky Johnson, seen uh, Nucky Johnson from you know, yeah. Boardwalk Empire. And it was also so weird to me to walk by the Trump Taj Mahal that's still just sitting there empty. It's like no one. This is hundreds of thousands or thousands of square foot of like prime real estate on the board. And it's like just empty and falling apart. It was so weird. It, yeah, yeah. That's weird. <laughs> Uh, I, fuck that guy. <laughs> um, believe it or not, we talked to a lot of artists, and that's the general consensus. Although we have Weird. random listeners say that they're not a fan of that view, but when you talk yeah. to enough artists, that's usually their view. Well, you know, it's also so weird to me. Like, you know, I was just um doing something with uh someone in the uk and they were talking about like regional arts funding and i was like it was such an alien set of concepts to wrap my head around is like a really active you know and and a lot of that's come out since um uh, the austerity stuff in the uk but just like the infrastructure so many other countries have to fund writers and artists and all these people doing stuff and art put arts in communities and all this stuff and it's like we have such a tiny emaciated little version of that here which is always such a bummer uh well Gishi Grice um he's a Canadian native First Nations I believe it's proper term but he wrote in Canada yeah yeah, he wrote this book called Moon of the Cross of Snow. Sequel is supposed to go on next year, but that was actually funded through one of those programs. And I just, that blew my mind because that was the first time yeah. I heard of that. Yeah, no, totally. And, you know, it, it leads to weird stuff, but it all, like in Canada, you look at, you know, government funding of like film and stuff and the tax breaks. And on the one hand, you're dealing with some really boring movies. On the other hand, you get David Cronenberg. So, like, you know, like, you know, you get you get some good stuff in there. Absolutely. Um, all right. If you guys want, I want to stay within the time frame that I said I would. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Talk for hours. Uh, <laughs> but I yeah, had a great time. This was great. Thank I you all so much fart. for inviting oh, Absolutely. No, absolutely. God, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I just wanted to run through a few outro questions. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you guys are cool with that. And Grady, I wanted to ask you first what are you currently reading? Okay, so it's really embarrassing. Everything I'm currently reading, I'm reading an obstetrics manual from 1967. Um, I'm reading a book that was written in the 90s that's a memoir set in the town in the 60s where my book's going to be set, and I don't want to say where it is. And I'm reading something called Wake Up Little Susie, uh, Unwed Mother's Infant Adoption and Forced Surrender. So I'm reading a lot of fun stuff. <laughs> I dive into that stuff with, like I said, I wasn't kidding about Korean War. Um, Although, uh, actually, the fun thing I'm reading right now, um, I'm not sure how it's going to turn out, but I just picked up uh, The Sins of Rachel Ellis. There are huh. seven doors to hell, one especially for little girls. So I'm, I'm looking one. forward to getting more into this. Yeah. Bride of the Incubus is the tagline. It's interesting. I didn't yeah, know you could buy married. Yeah. Once you find a topic that you like, um, you, you know, there's like magazines that are free online from the 
early 1900s and so um, up to modern day where it's um, like a radio magazine, but the ad, they have ads from that period. So it's one, one route you can go. That's also free. Um, that could help build up that realistic world for, you know, historical fiction. Oh yeah, no. It's it's and I, I, I actually just went down and spent like a week at the historical society down there reading the newspapers from the year it set in and like going through and getting weather reports and what's on television and the ads and looking at phone books from around there and stuff. So yeah, I love doing that stuff. Same. I'm a member of my historic society, actually. Mm. I, I'm, I'm a good for dork. you, man. I'm a dork with that stuff. Um, yeah. Cena, what are you currently reading? I am reading Just Like Home by Sarah Gailey. Nice. That's what, yeah. Oh, how is it? It's the new I'm one. I'm enjoying right? it. Yeah, yeah, it's the new one. So I'm enjoying that one quite a bit. So that's what I am. And then, you know, and then um, I, which I hadn't read because I've just been so busy, but Dark Factory by Kathy Koja. So I'm also reading like those two at the same time, which is yeah. very different. <laughs> Wait, is that a yeah. new book or is that one of her older ones? That one, Dark Factory, came out last this year. year. Last year? Okay. Yeah, last oh, year. wow. Yeah. How is it? Yeah. I'm enjoying that one. That one's very different. So, I mean, it's they're, they're two very, very different books. But uh, I think, I, I mean, it's Kathy Koja, so it's, it's yeah. wonderful. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying both of those right now. So, I'm, but I'm, I'm in between, like, tons of, like, research documents. And since I'm, uh, The Shoemaker's Magician comes out in February, so and that deals with silent film, the silent film history of Chicago. So I'm just still digging through a lot of like silent film research oh, so cool. and history. So, yeah, that is awesome. So those are my enjoying. Those are my my books for enjoyment, and in, in addition to all of my research. <laughs> Kathy Koju was on here. Um, she did a reading of Dr. Seuss, and that was just like the greatest <laughs> fucking thing ever. Because we. We, we did this thing for a little bit where we first had Cena on for um, like many episodes, but they're specifically catered for reading to a read. piece. Yeah. A piece of whatever their own fiction they want. Or in, in Kathy Koja's case, uh, Dr. Seuss and um, mix her vocabulary, Kirsten and Dr. Seuss together. And it's just wonderful. <laughs> Brennan, what are you currently reading? I am currently reading not enough, man. I, uh, I, I've not picked up a book in several days. I um, I just finished uh, writing probably the second draft, I guess, of the third book in a trilogy. So now I am deep diving back into book two to fix all the shit I messed up so that I can get it to the publisher and out in time before I go back to book three. And essentially it's eating up all my time. It's uh, these. This is my lunch break at work and this is, you know, I, I I closed it up about 15 minutes before we got on here, and if I can keep my eyes open, I'm going to jump back on it. But uh, yeah, I I would like to I would like to pick up a book for pleasure again one of these days. Maybe maybe this weekend. Who knows? Good Patrick, how about you? <laughs> Just finished Grady's How to Sell a House today. Uh, today. How to Sell a Haunted House. Blech, can't talk. Just How to Sell a House. And That's I felt <laughs> I felt it was kind of a neat mixture between like. It felt like there were influences of Ira Levin and Robert Morasco, and I, I love burnt offerings. And it just, oh, yeah. It, I was telling my wife on our walk today that uh, I was telling her about your book, and I said, This guy just doesn't, he cuts all the fat out. Like, we talked to plenty of great writers, but like, seriously, you just, 
you cut all the unnecessary words out and the way and I, tell me if this is crossing a spoilery territories but when you're talking about flashbacks and you're describing the inner circuitry of how someone thinks mm-hmm. um there's two doorways i'll just say that two oh yeah two people and one door closes um I reread that over a few times. I'm like, holy fuck, that's a good way to say it. Or when you're talking about a flashback, there's a table in real time, present day, and then it picks up from the flashback. I'm like, I'm I'm making oh. me- mental notes myself because that's. Excellent. I really appreciate that because I got to say, as I was doing the copy edits on that book, I reread Rosemary's Baby, and I, holy I cow, man. It. yes, I knew it. So <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. It's so good, and that it's book is so. so- fuel efficient like he does so much with so little i was just Mm -hmm. like oh my god i'm a faker this is all how could i you know what i mean i was just like this is so and you know he's really operating at a higher level as a writer i think than a lot of us brandon what was that i I reread it last i reread it last year and i'm like this is it's just so good it's yeah so efficient yeah, it is. And it's funny, you know, I read the sequel, Son of Rosemary, and it's so not interesting. Yeah. And it's it's really hard <laughs> yeah. to wrap your head around the same. Like, Stepford Wise, I also think is great. And A Kiss Before Dying. Yes. It's so hard to wrap your head around the fact that it's the same guy. It's like, what happened? I, um, yeah, I don't know. Right. And what was that medication? We Chuck Polinick, we had him on to talk about Rosemary's Baby. We had him on before that, and he talked about Rosemary's Baby a little bit, too. And he was saying he was addressing Ira because Le- he talked with Ira Levin. He did like a four for whatever edition it was. Mm, yeah, yeah. And he was saying that um, Ira, I don't think outright said this, but it, it's Chuck's belief that Ira, Ira was writing about um, what was the medication called, Brian? Do you remember? I want to say thalidomide, but I don't that's know. If it, I'm just yeah. thinking of Billy Joel. No, 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 no. That's no, not no. It. About thalidomide. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's his belief that um, it was the commentary on that because uh, he can't outright say this is what the book's about. So it's about a woman with, you know, the son of the devil. And it's really like I read the book before he told us that. and, And then when he said that, I'm like, that makes complete sense. And that's kind of more fucked up than the son of the devil because we're doing it to ourselves. Yeesh. I'm uh, gonna start reading a new author. This is their debut book, uh, Lore. Oh, man. oh, Laura, I saw I that. I don't like oh. the glare. Um, I believe it's Gislason. Laura Gislason. So it's called Inside Out. I just don't like the glare of. Oh, there it is. I gotta do reverse positioning. A freaky um, cover. Yeah, it's supposed to be super like interesting body horror and uh we're gonna have them on um this monday so upcoming monday it's actually the episode before this one so it comes out the day of their book release i think it was but it it seems really neat and it's coming out through dark lit uh publications or press i mix those up press yeah i should have these notes down i don't but anyways um they come out with a lot of neat stuff. They just came out with Brendan's book called Noose, um, a horror western with heavy influences of Batman. Um, Sina, before we go, I, I would love it if you could talk about your upcoming books. Uh, 
have like three coming out. Uh, crime oh my scene. god! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I just tell people just tell me where to be. Uh, crime scene from Raw Dog Screaming Press. That's a poetry uh, narrative told in verse. Loved it. So 13th. good. Thank you. And then um, Loteria, which is a um, Latin American a series of Latin American folklore uh, short story coming out from Polis in January. And then The Shoemaker's Magician, which is the second book, and The Chicago Saga, which deals with Chicago silent film history. That's out from Polis in February. It comes out uh, Valentine's Day. So. Oh, excellent. Um, and then, yeah. real, real quick, where can people follow you, Gravy? Let's see now. Uh, I'm do- all my dumb stuff gets collected at gradyhendrix.com, so it's easy. If you want to avoid me, don't go there. Sina, <laughs> <laughs> I, I my website's a mess, but it's still there. Sinapalayo.com, it's getting updated, and I'm on, tw- I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, Sina Palayo, so. that's P E L A Y O. Um, and final thoughts start with you, Grady, and Cena, the Brennan. Final thoughts. I feel like this is the end of the Jerry Springer show. Like, get off, has to get be it, touching. Take it together. Jerry goes, does it at the end. Very sincere, exactly. <laughs> um, I think we all need to listen to each other more. Um, no, I mean, final thoughts, not really. I mean, I'm glad, really glad you guys liked How to Sell a Haunted House. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I wrote it is I also wanted to do a traditional haunted house book. You know, it was when you write a book, you live somewhere else for a while. And it was really nice to be living in in a narrative that felt comfortable to me for the last like year or so. Um, so I hope I hope that I hope it's fun for people. Uh, yeah, man, I'm only saying this because you. You mentioned the puppets, but seriously, creepy as fuck. I used to actually, I'm going to say, I don't want to ruin anything, but, but I, I worked for some time for a uh, socialist puppet collective. So um, <laughs> taken yeah. taken from life. I didn't want to bring them up because I didn't want to be spoilery. Yeah, spoilery, but, but you said um, it first. <laughs> you said it first. So that's why I was like, I really want to talk about them. I'll, I'll grab him at an event and we can just chat about puppets. But uh, how, how to Sell a Haunted House is out January 17th. Yes. Oh, I, yeah, thank you. January 17th. And I absolutely loved it. And um, my final thoughts is that everyone just be nice to yourselves and nice to each other and pick up How to Sell a Haunted House January 17th. Absolutely. Brennan, you, sir. I'm going to echo the kind things that everybody has to say about this book. I think it's awesome. Um, I think there's a lot of really great meditations on uh, grief and Cena put them earlier a lot more intelligently than I can, but I love the way that you write Mark and Luis kind of going through grief in different ways and trying to kind of understand the way each uh, each other one is is processing it you know you talked earlier about uh cleaning out the house of a parent and there i think there's just so much depth in the initial approach that each one takes to cleaning out the house and you know trying to condemn the other one for the way they're going about it without necessarily trying to understand what that other person is going through. And that's, you know, that's before we even get into the puppets and stuff like that. It's, there's just so much in here. Uh, and I think people are really, really going to like it. 
And thank you for your time, Grady. Oh, yeah. No, dude. Thanks for having me. I love doing this. My final thoughts are pretty much echoing. Brennan is, um, I just, I, I truly do love this book. It's, um, I can't wait to buy it. When I said Ira Levin, I specifically meant Rosemary's Baby, and that's funny that you mentioned that. And uh, man, I, I can't tell you how happy I am that I got to read it, and we had you on because we've wanted you on for a while. And it's even better that we have to have the time to share with Cena, especially how she's on a deadline. That's crazy. It's an honor oh, to have both of you. What's your deadline? What now, <laughs> God, <laughs> run. They're like, do this book right now. We need to print the galleys. I'm like, oh, okay. So, oh my god, thank you for doing this. Then. Oh, this was this was great. This is this is this is what I I need this to you know that this uh, spiritual gathering of artists and creatives. It helps push the uh, the end of the book. Uh, for you know, it helps. Yeah, that's awesome. Everyone, next episode. 167 is with Michelle Garza and Melissa Lawson. Larson? L-A-S-O-N. I don't know if I'm saying Lason. They are the Sisters of Horror. The Sisters of Slaughter. I can't talk late at night, apparently. Um, everybody, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. Awesome.